0: I want to pick up, uh, we're in uh, the Gospel of John, as you know, and we're in chapter one, just beginning uh, uh, our study of the book. And I'd like to uh, pick up with verse five. Uh, Because it's been two weeks, I feel like I should almost review everything in the first four verses, but I'm going to choose not to do that. Hopefully, you, you either were here two weeks ago, or you were able to to uh, listen to or even view the podcast uh, of, that, of that session two weeks ago. But John, the writer of the gospel, John is the son of Zebedee, uh, his brother's James. He was one of the inner circle of Jesus. And he, as he will say over and over again, as you will see through the book, he was a witness to much of this that he's recording and is writing it down with this purpose, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so, uh, in a sense, then, the purpose of this gospel, the gospel of John, is to present the evidence that will cause people to believe. And uh, he presents Jesus in the first four verses as the eternally existent word of God, la-gosh of God, Hebrew with the bar of God. Very, very important term, which we talked a lot about. Verse uh, 2 affirms again, he was in the beginning, he's eternal. He was with God and he was God. The difference between his essence and his person. He was with God, his person. He was God, his essence. The Trinity is God. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. And this verse uh, helps to demonstrate that definition. Verse 3, the establishment of him as the creator of all things. Verse 4, the establishment of him as light that which expels, overcomes, and conquers darkness. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, darkness has not overcome it. Darkness is the metaphor, the figure of speech for the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom that stands opposed to and is in rebellion against God. And that theme, that uh, figure of light, is central to the Gospel of John, and you'll see this over and over again. All right, that in about two minutes is a summary of what we did uh, last time. Verse five, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now this is not John the writer of the gospel, this is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, now note the result clause, that all might believe through him. So there, I mean John will do this over and over and over again. The purpose of the revelation of who Jesus is is that people will believe. So the response to this revelation is an anticipated response of faith. He, uh, verse eight, uh, he meaning John Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. He's going to say more about John in just a minute, but he's introducing and connecting. That John, the, John the Baptist, is a witness to the light. Witness to the one who is going to overcome darkness. That intended result, we might believe. Now he's back, verse 9, and I'm going to slow down here. He's back to the theme of light. Verse nine, uh, verse 9, it's a little bit of a difficult verse. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Okay, now that takes us back to verse 4 and verse 5, where Jesus was introduced, the word as the light of men, the light signs in the darkness, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. All right, what does that mean? Why continue to focus on this idea of light? Because light is a figure of speech for revelation, for the revelation of who God is the true revelation of who God is. God is spirit. The incarnation of Jesus, the God-man, the incarnation is revelatory. I hope that's not too difficult of a word. Revelatory, it's revealing. And it enlightens everyone. Everyone is eventually going to be exposed to the revelation of God coming into the world. So, and this is very much in... In, um, in agreement with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is the final revelation of God. To this world of darkness, end of verse 5, to this world of darkness comes true light, truth, purity, holiness, that reveals, demonstrates, and explains who God really is. I just started reading, as a matter of fact, I I read a bit of it this morning, Ravi Zacharias' new book. I don't know if you noted noted that, but he just passed away. But he's a very famous apologist uh, for 40-some years. But he's written a book about looking at Jesus from the perspective of the eastern part of the world. He was an Indian, former Hindu, who came to faith in Christ. It's an extraordinary book. Because what what he's doing is he's trying to explain how does a person from an Eastern worldview, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Confucianism, how would they understand Jesus? And it's really a masterful book because he takes how the Bible explains very clearly in Eastern way of explaining things who Jesus is. And that's what John is saying here. This true light. The true revelation of God in this dark world is revealing what truth is, what true knowledge is, what purity and holiness really is. So the so verse 9 is, is quite a remarkable verse. Notice verse 10, however. He was in the world. And remember, uh, we talked about that before. The term world there is cosmos. But it doesn't mean that the tree that I look out from my window you can see the tree in my front yard, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that system that stands opposed to God over which Satan rules. And he says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So this world of darkness He created all the elements of this world, but unfortunately, it's now in rebellion against him. It doesn't know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, which would mean the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. That's going to be one of the explanations of the book of John. Why didn't most, no many did, but most, of the Jewish people, certainly the Jewish leadership, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., did not receive Jesus. So he's just making a a declarative statement, a statement of fact. He came to his people, the Jews, but they did not receive him. And that word receive uh, is quite an interesting word. It, It doesn't mean just accept. It means embrace him. It means welcome him. And as you know, in, in, in fact, many in the first century actually reject him. Now, not the disciples and many, many, many others, but probably you could say most rejected him. But then verse 12, the contrast, but to all who did receive him, now note this, this is really important, who believed in his name. So what John is connecting here is the reception and welcoming of Jesus with faith in Jesus. So connect receive with believe. And so, I mean, that's that's really quite a wonderful thing John's doing there. Those, Those words are used throughout the New Testament. The word receive and the word believe, connecting those two. He gave the right to become the children of God. So to receive Jesus, to believe in Jesus, makes you a member of the family of God, to become the children of God. So now this is the bunny trail, but I'll state it nonetheless. You and I, when we were born biologically, you and I are not born into the family of God. We only come into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here in verse 12. You receive, you believe, that gives you the right, the Greek word there is exosia, the authority to become children of God. You are now in God's family. So John is embarking here in verse 12 on a theme that he's going to develop through the book. What does it mean to be in the family of God? And it's something he'll talk about much, much later in the the book of John. So he's dumping a lot in these early verses that will be developed throughout the book. Now note verse 13, because he wants to explain this being in the family of God, being a child of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This isn't the result of sexual intercourse. The, the the will of the flesh or the will of man. This is of God. Jesus will develop this in John chapter 3 when he's talking Nicodemus, when he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I'm not talking about biological birth, Nicodemus. I'm talking about spiritual birth that only comes from above and it's going to be my means of the Holy Spirit. He's going to develop this and explain this in John chapter 3. So in these two verses, what John has done in trying to explain Jesus as the true light, the revelation of who God is, of what truth is, of what knowledge is, of what holiness and purity really is, is in Jesus. And those who receive him and believe in him become a part of God's family, which isn't the result of human uh, um, means sexual intercourse of the desire and will of men it's of God and it's this miraculous new birth which he will uh, which uh, Jesus will explain quite thoroughly in chapter three uh, in that discussion with Nicodemus now let me do one more thing now see if you have any questions verse 14 wonderful wonderful verse and the word verse one in the beginning was the word And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is this stupendous revelation of God, which is the incarnation. So he's now further developing something that is really, really, really important for genuine biblical Christianity. Christmas is about the incarnation And the incarnation is about God revealing himself in flesh. He adds to his deity humanity. That is the second person of the Trinity. Now notice this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it's a Greek word. One Greek word dwelt among us, which literally means he pitched his tent among us. Now, to translate that pitch his tent, is, it's awkward. What, what does that mean? Dwelt among us is easy for us to understand. But literally, he pitched his tent among us. All right, what does that bring to mind? That brings to mind the tabernacle. That brings to mind that when God delivered his people from Egypt and God gave them their constitution, his law at Mount Sinai, he also instituted the entire system of worship, and devotion to him through the sacrificial system that would occur in the tabernacle. So you could say that the incarnation is the new tabernacle of God. He is now among us. That's why one of the titles of Jesus, you see it in Matthew chapter 1, is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, in addition, this whole idea of tabernacling among us would have immediately resonated with the Jewish person of the first century and should immediately resonate with them in the 21st century. But it's taking this enormously important symbolism of the tabernacle and really later, of course, the temple when when Solomon built it, but making this Jesus is the new tabernacle, the new temple. Now take this one step further. When you and I become Christians, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We become the new temple of the living God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So now God, through the Holy Spirit, indwells us, and we are the new temple. And these incredible connections throughout the Old Testament, the ministry of Jesus, and the New Testament under the new covenant, of which the Holy Spirit is the sign, all comes together in an incredible continuity of God continue to reveal himself, who he is, and what he's doing. And so John says, because he tabernacled among us, continuing in verse 14, we have seen his glory. What kind of glory? Glory, and the ESV is spot on here. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That term Again, I read from the ESV translation, as the only is monogenes. If I had a board, I'd write that on the board if we were at First National, but M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, monogenes. It is unique, one of a kind, one and only, the son from the father. Monogenese has nothing to do with origin and beginning. Monoganes has everything to do with position and authority. So when John, uh, and Jesus will, will say this in John 3.16, but when that monoganes only, it stresses, it stresses his position, it stresses who he is, it stresses his identity. It has nothing to do with his origin or beginning. That's why it's really not helpful to translate it only, only begotten. Because that in English, the word begotten, it's confusing. So unique, one, only. There's only one like him, the son from the father. And to add to that, full, to add to that uniqueness, the uniqueness of monogonese, full of grace and truth. That echoes back to Exodus 34, verse 6, where grace is chesed. Remember, we learned that Hebrew word when we were studying the Psalms? Chesed, and the word of faithfulness, or chemet, which can easily, easily be translated uh, uh, truth. So, as part of this true light coming into the world as the final revelation of God, he is the ta- he's tabernacling among his people, full of the glory which is now manifested through the Son who's now full of chesed and chemet, full of grace and truth. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who keeps covenant, chesed, is now extended to Jesus, the one and only unique, explicitly unique son of the Father, who's full in his revelation of chesed and chemet, full of grace and truth. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is now dwelling among us in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, I said a lot in these verses, but this is powerful stuff here, man. This is powerful revelation of the uniqueness of who Jesus is. You cannot put Jesus and say on a pedestal and say he's a great teacher, a great ethicist. He is far, 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 far more than that. And what John is trying to do, taking a Greek term, logos, and dump in it to all the theological truth that connects with all the Old Testament revelation, where Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that in the incarnation, the most stupendous, spectacular revelation of God there is. You want to know what God is like? Read about Jesus in the Gospels. All right. I wanted to get through all that without taking a breath and without allowing any questions.
1: So now are the questions? Yes. uh, I have a couple. Um, one is the, you've mentioned Hesed again yes, and you've mentioned a book about Hesed. Um, I want to get a hold of that book and I was wondering if you could link me to it.
0: Okay. Um, I, I will. Either, it, it was a doctoral dissertation that was published Correct. as a book a number of years ago. Uh, and I can't find it. Oh, you can't. All right. Um, you have my email address, don't you? Um, I, maybe I'm not sure. Well, it's sent out with the stuff. But uh, okay. I'm I'm getting old and I forget things. So if you okay. send me an email, I'll be rem- I'll be reminded to find it for you and share it with you.
1: Perfect. So um, uh, we have the other uh, one. You thank you. Sorry for, to everybody for the distraction. I've just I've tried really hard to find that book. Um, the The question related to the topic at hand is: I'd like to dig a little deeper into the concept of through. Uh, it's mentioned in one ten, and then it's picked up from one three. I think those are the same word. If I read it uh, correctly, where not anything that was created was created through him. And then it reiterates it here in chapter ten, and I w- was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that of the the meaning of through. Because when I say it's, through is agency in, that, in yeah. my definition, the Greek uh, preposition
0: there's dia, and it you could you could paraphrase that by means of. In other words, you're you're correct. Agency, the agent of by means of. Mm-hmm. So the word was, the world was made through him, yeah. by means of him, reiterating what we saw in verse 3. All things were made through him, same word. Without him, there was not anything made that was made. This is stating the same thing. This world that now is in rebellion against him, and all elements of this world that is now in rebellion against him, he created it. And that's the amazing thing that Genesis one two and three states for us being reiterated here the world and everything in it was created by God and all three members of the Trinity were were part of that creative activity and the amazing thing is that world is now in rebellion against God
1: because the, the chief the rebel at, pardon me the reason I'm asking I'm sorry yeah. the reason I'm asking the question is um I have a friend who is a Jehovah's witness and um you know, one of the things that they, they reject the Trinity, they reject that Jesus Absolutely. is kind of, like, like in Islam is a nice guy um yeah. and kind of subordinate. And he's kind of like the chief manager, but he's not God. Yeah. So I'm trying to, you know, that people, I read something in Randy Alcorn's book, another one that you mentioned, I, I read that, you know, if you're if you're committed to a particular system and you're looking at everything through the lens of that system, you can twist just about anything. But I'm trying to get a whole council of God approach this. And I don't expect you to delve yeah. into that. I'm just I'm giving you some background well, why I'm asking this kind of a while ago.
0: A while yeah, a while ago, I wrote uh, an article on the grammar of these verses to answer the objections of the other Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they really? translate okay. verse one as "In the beginning was the Word; the Word was with God, and the Word was a God." Was, they do not translate exactly. it was God was a God, and then there the are a number indefinite of indefinite article. Yeah, and a number of things they twist that just it, it just does not hold water exegetically. It's mm-hmm. not it, they cannot possibly argue this, and so that's part of why I really did that. So when you send me the email Remani Rachesi. Also say J.W. stuff, and I'll I'll send you both those things. Perfect. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah. yeah.
2: Jim, um, I have a question for you. This is Fred. And um, you know, on that agency thing, that um, one of the principles of agency and law is that he who speaks through another speaks himself. So when the agent speaks, it's the principal speaking. So. That just makes a lot of sense to me uh, in that when you mention agency concept. But um, my question deals with grace in um, verse 14. Um, and can you expand on grace in the sense that, you know, I think there's, I've been reading different books about people who've come to Christ and they have a, a very assorted uh, background. And I think, I mean, I'm so encouraged by this grace. Can you expand on what that word means in in terms of Christ?
0: Well, uh, I mean, the way you're asking the question is very broad. In terms of verse 15, uh, excuse me, verse 14, yeah. it's speaking of Jesus, his his character and his person as the unique monogenes from the father and part of that revelation is not only that we have seen his glory earlier part of verse 14 but in addition he is full of grace and truth um the, the full of again that is such a it's hard to bring that into english adequately but you could yeah. say the monogenes of the father the embodiment of, the incarnation of grace and truth, that Mm -hmm. God, but but Mm -hmm. again, this is, this is keying in on Exodus 34, verse 6, where, I mean, that's what John has in his background here as he's thinking about this, full of chesed and full of chemat, full of grace and truth. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, God chose Abraham not because he deserved it, not because he merited it, not because he had done anything to deserve it. God just chose him. That's grace. It had nothing to do with Abraham deserving it or earning it or meriting it. Grace is God's choosing. Yeah. And as someone has taken the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We receive all the riches and blessings of the Heavenly Father, through Christ and his substitutionary death, his expense, or it has been defined, grace has been defined as unmerited favor. God extends to us favor that we did not merit, we did not earn because of Jesus. But in the context of verse 14, what John is saying of Jesus, he is the monogenes of the Father, the embodiment of the incarnation of grace and truth which are core values and attributes of the living God, who is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. These are covenantal Mm. words. Mm. The words, Mm. grace and truth, which he's bringing in from the Old Testament Exodus 3 are covenantal words. These were covenantal words by which the people of Israel understood what Yahweh Elohim was like. And so Mm. what John is doing is bringing this, all of this and dumping it in, to an explanation of Jesus. All of the yeah. stuff in the Old Testament about Yahweh Elohim mm-hmm. is now incarnated in Jesus. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's the language of this is just, to me, I mean, it is, I, I just, I love <laughs> to study this. When I was studying it again this morning, I'm just, I'm blown away at how mm-hmm. John is taking all these profound Old Testament revelations of God and saying, they are yeah. incarnated in Jesus, who's tabernacling among us, who reveals the glory of God and is the incarnation of grace and truth. Chesed yeah. and chemet.
2: Thank you. That's, That's the good. Best I can
0: Thank do. you. John 15, <laughs> verse, anything else? Hey, Jim, I do have a question. Yes, please. Um, verse 12. Yes. We're given the right to become children of God Tied to Ephesians one five, where it says we are predestined to be adopted as sons, or we have the uh, the uh, right to be predestined, or the ability. We
2: can choose. We can choose not to be adopted, but we
0: have the ability to be adopted. We're not. Whoops! It's that whole predestined question. Well. <laughs> Uh, in Ephesians chapter one, there uh, in four and five, what Paul it's a praise him to God, and we praise the Father because He chose us. And the the Greek word there is electos. We get our word elect from that. But then secondly, who in love predestined us to become children of God and so on. The word predestined is is again that I mean that's hard. It's controversial, but it's to predetermine our destiny, and our destiny is if we put our faith in Christ. Our destiny is to become a child of God, and I mean that's predestination. Don't that's a long word. It's a big word, but don't let it become controversial or even something to stumble. It just means God, in sovereignty, predetermines our destiny. And in this case, verse 5 of Ephesians 1, the destiny is to become the children of God. And that that perfectly complements what John is saying here, because he's tying that to our response of faith, believes in his name. In other words, it's the railroad tracks. The predestination is the divine sovereignty part of the railroad tracks. The human responsibility side of the railroad track is faith. You need both of those. Or you don't have salvation. I'm not. That's so simple. It's almost too simple. But so John in this passage is just stressing. You become a child of God. You have the authority, and that word "right" is exousia. It's Great, great Hebrew word. Uh, Greek word. We have the exousia, the right, the authority, the power to become children of God. Why? Because we believe the message, we believe the person, we put our faith in him, and the result is we become a member of God's family. It isn't through sexual intercourse, verse uh, 13, it's of God, and that's what he will explain to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. you got to be born again, Nicodemus. Have I answered your question, Bill? Yes, you have. Okay. Let's look at verse 15. Now John, uh, or the editors of ESV, has put this in parenthesis, and that's, that's, probably, that's probably good. John bore witness about him. And this is John the Baptist again, the one we were introduced to earlier in verse 6. John bore witness and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, before uh, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Close parenthesis. Now, this is something John the Baptist said several times. And his disciple, John the Baptist disciples, were saying, Hey, John, everybody's following this new guy that's following Jesus. And John says, That's okay. That's why I came in the first place. And he does outrank me because he was before me. And that phrase before me relates to his eternality. He's before me. Taking you back to John chapter one, verses one and two. John the Baptist understood that the reason Jesus is who he is and why he outranks him as the forerunner is because he was before him. And it's just a statement, and that's what John is doing, as, as this incredible verse, thir- verse 14, which we just finished studying, John adds in parenthesis. now John the Baptist bore this because he said, the reason he outranks me is because he was before me. He's the incarnate God tabernacling among us. That's why he outranks me. So John says, that's what that's what John the Baptist was talking about. Verse 16. And from his fullness, Greek word there's pleroma, through his fullness. Whose fullness? The fullness of the incarnate of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Back to verse 14. And from his fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace. Because Jesus is the incarnation of grace and truth. From that fullness, we've received grace dumped upon grace. That's a euphemism. Just saying grace, 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 grace. Everything that explains God's dealing with the human race is explained by one word, grace. There's common grace that God showers upon every human being. Jesus will say it doesn't, doesn't just rain on the righteous, it rains on the unrighteous as well. The sun doesn't just shine on the righteous, it shines on the unrighteous as well. That's common grace. There's the saving grace of Ephesians 2 8 9, for by grace through faith you're saved. And there's the sustaining grace, the grace of God that sustains us day by day by day in his sanctifying work in our lives. So Jesus, excuse me, John is saying how that fullness of the incarnation of grace and truth we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Upon grace. further elaborating this god this covenant making covenant keeping god this god of chesed is a god who exemplifies and manifests chesed grace and grace grace and grace constantly continual now what he wants to do in verse 17 for the law was given through moses Everybody agrees. Mount Sinai, Moses received the law. Grace and truth. Back to the end of verse 14. Chesed and Shemeth come through Jesus Christ. Now that's really important. He is a greater revelation than John the Baptist. He's a greater revelation than Moses. He is the final Revelation. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God. In Greek, that's monogenes theos. The only God who is at the Father's side, literally, in the Father's bosom. He has made him known. The Greek word there is he has exegeted him. He has explained him. No one has ever seen God, clear, throughout the Old Testament, but the monogenes the only God, back to verse 14, the only God who is in the Father's bosom or at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again, what a clear explanation of the Trinitarian nature of God. You have the Father. And at the sight of the Father is the Son who is making him known, who is exegeting him, who is explaining him how. In verse 14, the incarnation is the final revelation of who God is. He explains who God is. John, will, Jesus will say to Philip in John 14, Philip, I've been with you so long, and you're asking me, show us the Father. He that has seen the Father has seen me, Jesus will say. And this this phrase, manabeneis theos, is again, which is, ESV translates, the only God, or the only begotten God, if you want to insert that word. That, that again, is a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus. It shoots all kind of holes in the JW. It, it absolutely destroys their whole argument about Jesus being a created being. And by the way, Russ, ask your JW friends, to compare John 8.58 with Exodus 3.14. asked them to explain the connection. Because Jesus is clearly claiming to be Yahweh there. And, just, and the, the Pharisees understood it because they wanted to kill him. I'm all pumped up here now from this tremendous text. Woody, are you with me? All right. All right, any questions on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? Very, very doctrinal, very theological, but very rich. This is one of the richest passages in the entire Word of God on understanding who Jesus is and why the incarnation is so important. All right, everybody with me? All right. That's great. I, I You may have gotten the idea that I, re, I really enjoy teaching this stuff. It's very, very uh, important stuff. And a typical person in the pew has struggled going through this. I hope it's a little easier now. I'd love to give you a big thought paper, Simon, on these first, two, uh, first 18 verses, but I won't do that. Verse 19. Now John shifts... To a more extensive discussion about John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John. Takes you back to verse 15. John bore witness. Takes you back to verse 6. John was a witness, a testimony of who this light was. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews, Now, I'm not going to do this every time, but I want to make sure I explain something. When John, the writer of this gospel, uses the phrase, the Jews, he's not talking about all Jews. This isn't an anti-Semitic statement. The phrase, the Jews, is an expression John uses in his gospel to focus on the leadership, It's focusing on the leadership of first century Judaism, the Sanhedrin, which was made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and and a few Herodians. And so that's what he's talking about. So you could paraphrase that, and this is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist, when the Jews, meaning the leadership in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, made up of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and a few Herodians. They sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who's the him? John the Baptist. Now, if you, you read in the other Gospels, like in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, and even a little bit in Mark, John the Baptist's ministry was along the Jordan River. And he was out there for months and months and months baptizing people, It was a baptism of repentance to acknowledge their sin in preparation for the kingdom of God. His message was, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The king is here. John the Baptist, according to the prophecies of Isaiah, is a forerunner of the Messiah. According to the book of Isaiah, he cuts the path for Messiah. According to the book of Isaiah, he makes way the the path of Messiah. He's preparing the people of Israel for the coming of their Messiah. And to be baptized by John is to identify with that truth. And so he's been doing this. He's a strange looking guy. He consciously dresses like Elijah did in, 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 in the book of, 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 of Second Kings, 1st uh, Second Kings. He's, he's clearly seeing himself as the new Elijah. And so he's stirring everybody up. He created quite a few And the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem is coming unglued. So they send a bunch of emissaries out to the Jordan River. And this is what they ask him. Who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, that means I am not the Messiah, because Christ is the Greek transliteration, Christos, of the Hebrew word Messiah. So he's in effect saying, who are you? He said, well, I'm not the Christ. And then they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He looked like Elijah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says that an Elijah-like figure will come before the Messiah. So are you Elijah? His answer, I am not. Are you the prophet? Meaning Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses prophesied a coming prophet that was greater than him. Jesus will quote Deuteronomy 18.15 and say, I am the prophet that Moses was talking about. So they ask him that So all three of those questions are really legitimate questions. They are the right questions to ask. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. So they're appropriate questions. So then they said again, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. The Sanhedrin has commissioned us, and we can't go back and say, you're not asking answering our question. What do you say about yourself? So in verse 23 of, Matt, of John chapter 1, John the Baptist quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, one of the great messianic chapters of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, correctly and accurately, John the Baptist is identifying himself as the forerunner, the one who cuts the path, the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. Now, I'm going to be very blunt here. These priests and Levites, and then when they took this material back to the Pharisees and Sadducees and some of the Herodians sitting in the Sanhedrin, when they heard that, There is no way they didn't understand what John was claiming. Therefore, it becomes clear as you go through the rest of the Gospel of John, they are now going to have to grapple with this issue. Is Jesus the Messiah? Because John is claiming to be the forerunner. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, which we're going to see next week, Jesus is going to start doing all kinds of messianic miracles that were prophesied in the Old Testament to prove that he is the Messiah. So right now, right out of the chute in this confrontation with John the Baptist, the spiritual leadership of first century Judaism must come to terms with who is this? Because this guy is doing all the stuff that the Old Testament prophecy said we should look for. But man, isn't it amazing? Despite the clarity of this revelation, they're still going to reject them. That's one of the amazing stories in the gospel. The evidence is there. They still reject. Verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, they ask him, and that's just telling us particularly who's beyond, behind these questions that the priest and Levites are asking. Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stand one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. Again, John the Baptist is comparing himself to Jesus. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing, and that's not the Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Joseph lived. This is a Bethany farther up the the Jordan River. All right, um, I don't I don't think that's difficult. This this whole paragraph that started uh, earlier in in the chapter that we were reading in verse uh, 18. But any questions about John the Baptist or what what was going on here in this discussion with the leadership? Because I would really like to get 29 through 34 in before we, we, we end our class.
2: Just a quick question, Jim. Oh, on um, this uh, verse 23, They and the Sanhedrin recognized that what what he was saying but still with all that they chose deliberately to reject jesus christ as the son of god and and so and you know i like to, yes mm-hmm. and and so today as we witness to other people you know we we have a desire that no one should perish, which is (laughs) the desire of God too. And yet we realize, looking at this example, that there will be people who even full of knowledge and studied and everything will still reject Jesus Christ as their savior. But as far as slowing our ministry and our outreach and our sharing and witnessing for Christ that really isn't our responsibility in terms of the result but rather that if we feel that way that's part of our mission but shouldn't be discouraged by that can you comment i mean can you provide some encouragement well in that way?
0: well the most important the most important responsibility of a steward is to be faithful And we are stewards of the gospel, and that stewardship is to be faithful when we have opportunities to share the gospel, to share the truth about who Jesus is. When I was ordained into the ministry back when the earth's crust was hardening a really long time ago, my mentor said two things to me, and one of the things he said to me, I'm pretty sure I've shared that here before, but he shared with me something that was profound. I've never forgotten it. Jim, your business is not to change people. That's God's business, just be faithful. And so that's very freeing and very liberating. And for all of us, whenever you share the gospel, whenever you are trying to live out your faith, um, you, you are not the one who's gonna change people or transform people, that's God's business. We are merely asked to be faithful in what God is asking us to do. And in sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, declaring who Jesus is and so on, um, the results are in God's hands. It is lethal for us to take upon our shoulders feeling or responsibility to transform people. That's not our business. God does that. It is our business to be faithful in declaring the truth. Thank you. Verse 29, the next day, now John, the writer, wants us. he wants this to be connected. He is doing a chronology here. The next day, he, and the he is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, this is incredible. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that phrase, the Lamb of God, is connected to the Old Testament. An example would be Isaiah 53, 7 where the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who dies for his people, but it also is connected, of course, with Passover, and it's connected with the the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of the lamb to atone for sin, but Jesus is the lamb of God who once for all will atone, atone means to cover, for sin. He takes away the sin of the world. I mean, that. That declaration of John here in verse uh, 29, I mean, that's that's absolutely astonishing because it summarizes everything we've been reading in verses 1, 1 through 18 in that long, very doctrinal and theological discourse. It all distills down into this, this monogenes, this only son of the father is the lamb of God. He is going to die for the sins of the world. This is the one of whom I've said, after me comes a man who ranks me because he was before me. We read about that earlier. Before me, his eternality. I myself did not know about him for the purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words, what John is saying is at that point, I didn't understand he was the Messiah. But as he comes to be baptized, I did. And John bore witness. What is it that convinced John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah? Verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, So you see John the Baptist is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah when the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And then he declared that he is John at the end of verse 33, what the Father had spoken, he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, you think Ezekiel 36, immediately you think of the new covenant. Because the Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit, you are baptized in by and with the Holy Spirit as the mark of the new covenant, which replaces and supplants the old Mosaic covenant. So now listen, I'm going to utter sentences really, really important here. John the Baptist now understands that the Messiah will introduce the new order of things that Messiah is going to inaugurate the new order, the new covenant. And the Holy Spirit will be the energizing power of the new covenant because he will indwell believers. And so as with all that was in the first 18 verses, now in this section, John, the writer, as he's reviewing this narrative, of how John the Baptist became convinced Jesus was the Messiah, he's introducing this profoundly important new covenant concept that Jesus, the baptism that I have, John the Baptist says, is not anything comparable to the baptism that's gonna be associated with Jesus because Jesus will baptize in, by, and with the Holy Spirit which is the mark and sign of the whole new order of things, which Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and Hebrews chapter 10 calls the new covenant. And that new covenant has as its energizing center and power, the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him and I have borne witness. This is the son of God. So in verse 29, he's the lamb of God. In verse 34, he's the Son of God. Back in the previous paragraph, he's the Monogenes of the Father, the only Son of the Father. You see, the doctrine of who is Jesus is starting to come together in titles. He's the only Son of the Father. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. And so all of this is beginning to define who Jesus is, using Old Testament terms, Old Testament concepts, fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus, who tabernacles among people, full of chesed and chemet, full of grace and truth. And because of that, we experience grace upon grace upon grace. I mean, it's just these marvelous, marvelous phrases introducing who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. He is the one who will inaugurate the new covenant. He will baptize in, by, and with the Holy Spirit. It's not the same baptism as John the Baptist at all. And I have borne witness, John the Baptist. I am the witness that he's the Son of God. All right. Got it? All right, these are tremendous truths. Any questions?
1: I have, uh, I have one. Um, one thing that has perplexed me, and this is going to go into the whole. now. Um, how did the disciples continuously miss one twenty nine? You know, was it the same position as the Jewish authorities? Um, saying that they were expecting a conquering ruler to take them the shackles away from Rome, so they were yeah. looking toward that. But it's like it was—he said himself, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be sacrificed. I'm the Lamb of God. This is my mission. This is my purpose. Yes. And it's like the people that were the closest to him seemed to miss this. Yes. It's like, and that kind of reflects back on us as we're trying to, to get more closely connected to God and our own biases or whatever tends to block us from yes. how,
0: Well, I'm yeah I mean, you're, you're asking what is really quite a central question that is um, threaded throughout the Gospel of John Why didn't they get it? Or in other words saying it Why were their hearts so hardened against God? And the clear revelation of who Jesus is as the 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 Lamb of God. And I mean you you were right, because all of this material that I've tried to cover here, I've tried to link it back to old testament prophecies, because they should have understood all this. As a matter of fact, they should have understood this better than even you and I should understand it. Mm. They're steeped in this. But really more importantly, their conception, their perception. Of who the messiah was going to be was was through the grid purely of political power and that's amazing because the old testament prophecies do talk about the messiah coming in victory and conquering all his enemies and establishing his kingdom rule in jerusalem but they missed all of the other material or refused to acknowledge all the other material that before he can rule and reign he has to die for his people Isaiah 53 is so clear. I mean, if you read Isaiah 53 with intellectual honesty, you should see, yeah, behold, the Lamb of God got it. That's exactly what Isaiah fifty. I got it. Wow, he's here. It's fabulous. They skipped over all of that. And I mean, it's just, it's the hardness of the human heart. And that's one of the reasons that for you and for me, it's, it's one of the reasons I'm very interested in people's worldviews. Because whatever their worldview is, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, or whatever it is, secular, atheist, they look at Jesus through that group worldview.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's only the Holy Spirit of God that can break down that worldview and help them to understand using the Word of God who Jesus really is. Russ, your job and my job is not to change people. That's mm-hmm. God's business. But we right. are obligated to clearly present who Jesus is. And leave the results up to God. Your JW friends, the, your JW friends must clearly understand what the New Testament is saying about Jesus, not not what the founder of the JW's is saying.
1: Correct. Um, one of the things that they portray in movies is that what it was a political um, action or motivation that caused Judas, Judas to betray Jesus. Uh, some of the movies say, "Hey." Yeah. I'm going to make sure that he now overthrows the Romans. I'm yeah. forcing his hand. Is that just they're taking that, liberties? Or
0: I think that's speculation. I I am not sure. I'm not. I can't sure. find scriptural
1: support you for it. It's no, interesting.
0: No, you you can't find biblical support that Judas had a political agenda. Mm. I I really I don't think I don't think that's an accurate depiction of what's motivating Judas. All yeah. right, <laughs> gentlemen, I just saw that it's time to quit. Thank you for the good questions and good interaction. The, we are in the, we are in one of the richest gospels in the Bible, in the in the of the four gospels. I hope this has been a blessing. Now next week, next week we're going to get out of some of this real difficult stuff. We're going to get into him calling the the disciples, uh, chapter two, the great wedding at Cana, John chapter three, Nicodemus, John chapter four, the woman at the well. So. We're going to now begin to really study some of the great narratives of the Book of John. So I hope you've hung in there with me and you're, you've been you've been blessed by this study. I've really been blessed, but I want to make sure you are. All right, let me pray, and then we'll we'll, we'll let you go. Lord, thank you for this time of in-depth study of Chapter One. It is one of the most uh, complex and yet very revealing chapters in the Bible explaining who Jesus is. We are so grateful. I'm personally very thankful that you give me the privilege of teaching this, of reviewing all this with these men. I thank you for each one of them. I am trusting you and pray for this each time we get together, that Lord, you're developing and maturing these men, um, that they are men of God, men of faith, who seek to represent you well, to be the men that you want them to be. I trust them to you. Thank you for the time we've had together, enrich their lives through the word of God, help them to be the men you want them to be. Take care of all their special needs. I don't know what special prayer needs there are, but Lord, you know their hearts. You know each request. And Lord, we never pray to give you information. You already have, that. it's that cultivating that deep personal relationship with you. So I pray that for these men. Watch over them. Give them a good week in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.